Thanks to Zapier for supporting MarketFoolery. Zapier is the easiest way to automate your work. It connects all your business software and handles work for you, so you can focus on the things that matter most. Try Zapier for free by going to our special link, zapier.com fool. It's Wednesday, October 16th. Welcome to MarketFoolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today, Jason Moser. Thanks for being here. Hey, hey. Happy times in the greater metropolitan Washington, D.C. area. Happy, happy, happy. Man, and this is on top of the WNBA championship. Yes. yes. The Stanley Cup just a couple of short years ago. It makes you even wonder why Why, why do we even have a football team here? <laughs> is there a football team? I mean, does that really qualify as football at this point? They're, they're, they're taking a backseat, yeah. as they should. To yes. the, so, congrats to the Nationals yeah. going to the World Series. Um, we've got some earnings. We've got some, I was going to say interesting. It is interesting. We've got some interesting retail sale sales data. Uh, we'll get to that in a second. Let's start with Bank of America, though. Um, third quarter profits and revenue came in slightly higher than expected for Bank of America. You tell me what's what's working better for Bank of America right now. Is it the consumer banking side or is it the investment banking side? Well, I mean, I think if, uh, the numbers would tell you that if the investment banking side of the business is really um, performing well and, and was was responsible for a lot of these results. Now, I mean, if we look back last quarter, we were talking about how, on the surface, a lot of these banks were really dealing uh, with a challenging environment, just given the interest rate environment, given the uncertainty with the the ongoing trade war. Market volatility that results from all of this. I mean, banks were really having a bit of a challenge there, and it does it does show you the advantage that the big banks have in their scale. But but I mean, when you look at this quarter, it wasn't just the investment banking side, but certainly that was the 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 star of the quarter. I think. I mean, heck, even in consumer investment accounts, grew seven percent for a year ago from a year ago. Um, but all all in all, I mean, the bank is performing very well. Consumer banking revenue was up three percent. Uh, loans grew by seven percent. Deposits up by three uh, percent. Consumer checking accounts up two point three percent. Their highest total in ten years. So it is. It, they're getting contributions from all sides of the business. But I, I tell you, what really struck me in going through the the report here in in the accompanying presentation is the investments that they're making in digital and the success that they're realizing on the digital front. I mean, it's not surprising, I guess, but I think it just goes unnoticed because of the threats that we talk about quarter in quarter out from all of these tech Silicon Valley based companies like Square, Stripe, PayPal and whatnot. It's interesting because for the longest time the narrative with Bank of America it more so it seems to me than the other big banks. It seems like they had the longest hangover from the Great Recession. Oh, in it, part because of that horrific countrywide acquisition that they made. It was a dark cloud that, and I mean, I, I was working there for a spell during that time, and it, it was so amazing to see the attitude when that acquisition was made and the enthusiasm. I mean, it was unbridled enthusiasm, Chris. Like really, the the, the Feeling there was that Bank of America was taking over the world, 
Ken Lewis just could do no wrong. And uh, I mean, it did the sky was the limit. And, and then you crack open the books there, and <laughs> it, it wasn't exactly as good as we thought it would be. Um, but but I mean, going back to this to this investment in digital, and I really want to do shine a light on this because we talk a lot about Square and PayPal and this war on cash. Um, Bank of America is investing a lot in this, and it's paying off. They have 38 million digital digital users now. We don't talk a lot about Zelle. I don't, I've personally never, never even used Zelle, and we have Bank of America accounts in our family. Now that doesn't mean Zelle isn't isn't doing well here, though, because when you look at the numbers they're turning in transactions for Zelle, they have 8.9 million users now. Came in just under 81 million person to person transactions for the quarter. That's close to double. What they chalked up a year ago, and when you talk about the dollar volume flowing through those networks, twenty-one billion dollars went through that network for the quarter. That's almost double from a year ago. So, just because I'm not using it doesn't mean it's not being used. And I think it's a good lesson for investors to remember: don't just take your worldview and extrapolate that to the greater market. So you've got your family's money with Bank of America. My family, it's Capital One. And the most recent conversation I had with someone at Capital One, Zell came up. Oh yeah, they're using, you know, and it was just like, oh, okay. So well, is... I mean, what was that conversation? It was like? basically you know? like, hey, it, 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 at one point I just said, so wait, is this your Venmo? And the guy was like, <laughs> well, yeah, kind of. Sort I was of. like, okay, and I thought, you know, that's that's smart that they're that they're trying to do this, and it's um, it's a, you know, all things being equal, I think it's a good thing that. Um, Banks are looking to change with the times. Yeah, I agree. And um, we we certainly saw. I mean, recently there was this report. I think it was an Accenture report that was talking about this land grab out there in the payment space as as the cost of of moving money around is is coming down. And there are companies out there that are really capturing that. And there were opportunities that these big banks were missing. And part of that part of that rang true. I mean, I think part of it also it's it's worth remembering that. There are efficiencies that are being wrung out of the system here, so it's not like that money is going from one bucket into another bucket. I mean, a lot of times that efficiency efficiency is just creating a little a little bit more of a streamlined market. But there's no question that the big banks are trying to get in there and capture their share of that of that payment space, and it does look like Bank of America is gaining a lot of traction. Stock up a little bit. Uh, shares of United Airlines up a little bit this morning as well. Third quarter profit. Came Came in at a billion dollars. That was a little bit higher than expected. Revenue was sort of even with expectations, but they raised guidance for the full year. And I would point out that United Airlines is doing this without the 737 Max, as as most every <laughs> most all major airlines are. Thankfully, I don't know that I want to be hopping in one of those things anytime soon. And I've got a couple of flights coming up here in the near future. Um, airlines are really interesting. I mean, on the one hand, I've got. I mean, I personally just have never really had any interest in investing in them. They always just seem a bit too capital intensive and in beholden to to certain regulatory or or. Macro concerns that are kind of beyond my control, but airlines often make me think of companies like Comcast. And what I mean by that is, if you only paid attention to what people say, what consumers say, if you just scroll through social media, just search Comcast customer service, I'm willing to bet that 99.9% of that is all just total hate. People just don't like Comcast, right? They just 
the customer service is horrible, whatever, yada yada yada. I mean, I don't I don't have Comcast, I can't speak to it. But my point is there is this there is this vibe out there on the consumer side where uh, people don't like companies like these. When it comes to airlines, most of what you're going to see is people complaining about canceled flights, delayed flights, expensive seats, getting kicked off their flight, you know, whatever that may be. But when you look at it from the actual business side, I mean, there are a lot of reasons to actually consider investing in businesses like these. Um, I mean, it, these these are companies that offer up a lot of opportunities simply because of their competitive positions in their respective spaces. I mean, the spaces they serve are really important. And, and I think the numbers bear that out. I mean, if you bought shares of United five years ago and, and you're owning them today, I mean, you're sitting on 15% annualized returns. I mean, your money has doubled over the course of the last five years. And, and I think that's, you know, for a number of, of reasons. Uh, clearly, the, the air to an airline with scale, they can invest their resources wisely. Fuel costs have been relatively low. Um, they, they expect to increase capacity by 3.5% this year. Uh, that, that core metric there, revenue per available seat mile, Grew uh, 1.7 percent. That was in line with their forecast, and they do see this metric kind of hanging in that area for the rest of the year. So I think they set good expectations. They raised their guidance a little bit. Um, the big unknown is that 737. Nobody knows, right? And I mean, I think everybody would would uh, opt for safety first. Absolutely, but I think that it's this other layer of uncertainty within the airline industry and it's not evenly distributed. Some airlines have much a much greater exposure to the 737 Max and therefore they have more planes that are grounded. So in a way it makes it a little bit harder to sort of judge if you're looking at all the airlines and thinking, well, yeah, these are better run businesses, Buffett who hated airlines forever, has bought shares of a bunch of them, so I'm going to try and figure out which ones to buy. I feel like it's a little bit more difficult just because, again, it's not that exposure to the 737 MAX is not evenly distributed. So, Delta Airlines doesn't have nearly the exposure that United or Southwest does. Um, so, like, in Delta's latest quarter, are, like, are they doing really well relative to the competition, or are they just doing really well because they don't have the exposure? And once the 737 MAX gets fixed, all of a sudden, United and Southwest have capacity that they didn't have before. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good point, and I think that United and the other airlines that depend more on the 737. I mean, they've, they for the most part have gotten out in front of it, and instead of waiting for problems to arise, I mean, they've really gone through, adjusted their schedules, canceled a lot of flights that were going to be dependent on this, and so you know, from that perspective, you could say, well. Their earnings, their their profitability, their potential is is probably a little bit depressed right now. I mean, the market clearly knows that, and so then you have to try to make a judgment as to how much credit is the market giving it for when the time comes that the 737 issues are fixed and everything is is getting back to normal, and airlines like United are able to integrate more flights back into their rotation. Because clearly, the market's assuming at some point they will. It's a matter more of when. That that really is kind of a guessing game. It's it's very difficult to say there. But but either way, I mean, if you're looking at investing in airlines, um, I, I mean, it, United United clearly looks like a very well managed company. They've been focusing for a long time here on trying to return. 
value to shareholders in in one form or another. I mean, I think share repurchases um, have have been a really good way, uh, an effective way for them to do that. I mean, they've returned, uh, they've bought back more than eight billion dollars in shares since 2014. Uh, they have a balance sheet in good shape. Operating earnings cover that net interest expense six to seven times over on a fairly consistent basis. And I mean, it you know they they make healthy amounts of cash along the way too. Um, airlines are notoriously difficult, but well-run airlines can certainly uh, offer opportunities for investors. I'm glad you mentioned that because Oscar Munoz and his team are doing a good job with this. And despite the run of this stock, it still doesn't look all that expensive. No, no, it doesn't. You're right. Uh, quick shout out to Zapier. When you're running your own business, your to-do list is never-ending, and the solution is to automate tasks. And that's where Zapier comes in. Zapier is built to automate your work because it connects all your business software and handles work for you so you can focus on the things that matter most. You can go to zapier.com slash fool and connect the apps that you use and let Zapier take it from there in just minutes. Uh, we've got a lot of people using a lot of different systems here at The Motley Fool, and Zapier helps us integrate them all. Because when you're going from Zoom video to Slack to Google Docs and back again, uh, you can lose track. And That's just like a day in the life here. Yeah. <laughs> And Zapier is really great at helping us zap from one app to the next. And right now through November, you can try Zapier free by going to zapier.com slash fool. That's Z-A-P-I-E-R dot com slash fool for your free 14-day trial. That's zapier.com slash fool. So the monthly retail sales numbers came out. And normally I don't pay a lot of attention to them. Um, Retail sales in September fell 0.3%. That certainly doesn't seem like a big number, but it's the largest amount since February. And I think I have this right, that e-commerce sales fell month over month. And that that's a little surprising to me. Well, and I think that's all also based on a forecast of I, I think there was something around two tenths of a point expansion, right? I mean, this that that was it doesn't sound like much on its own, but when you compare that to the actual expectations, it becomes a little bit more I don't want to say concerning, but it, it it's enough to it's enough to get it on the show today. <laughs> um, well, well, yes, and uh, as we point out from time to time. This is one of those months that matters a little bit more than others. You know, yeah. you think about incorporating back to school shopping in August and September. That's the second most important time of the year for retailers. Yeah, and we saw some retailers really capitalize on that, right? We were talking, I think, just a couple of weeks ago on Molly Full Money about how Nike. You know, they said in the call, they were like, "Hey, listen, we had one of the most successful back to school seasons ever." And and so it's not to draw this this. Big, you know, it's not it's not to, to paint this this picture of all retailers suffering, but I mean we are you know we're going into a very pivotal time of the year. We're out of back to school season now. We're getting into the holiday season, and I, I I'm not going to make a call here and saying that this is going to happen. I wouldn't be surprised though if we are headed for a tougher holiday season than maybe some were thinking just a few months back. I think we're going to see. Trade concerns and costs playing into consumers' decision-making process a bit more this year versus last year. I think last year the assumption might have been on the consumer front that oh, trade war, big deal. It's just a news cycle, and that'll be fixed before you know it. And you know, everything was just kind of status quo. I think that what we're coming to find now is that 
this trade war is not something that's going to be ending anytime soon. And I think most of that is for political gain. I think we're coming into a very pivotal election season, and I think politicians are really trying to milk this thing for all it's worth. Uh, but what that ultimately is resulting in, you're seeing a lot of retailers, you're seeing a lot of businesses right now, small businesses particularly, that still have the uncertainty that this trade war presents. They're raising prices because they just don't fully know exactly how this is all going to shake out. And as you raise prices, that typically puts a little bit of a stranglehold on consumer behavior. And you know, there's data out there that that says that hey, while consumers are feeling on the whole pretty good about things, unemployment's low, wages are kind of stagnant. Though I mean, people aren't really feeling. Um, Perhaps as good as they want to feel. I mean, there's some really interesting, uh, some telling data out there regarding the state of consumer credit card debt today. And, and there was one, there was one data point that struck me as pretty fascinating because if you look across the this spectrum of household wealth, in 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 how much credit card debt these households have, households with the lowest net worth. Zero or even negative, they're the ones that hold the most in credit card debt. And so, over time, this really has only gotten worse. Ultimately, today, the average American holds 52% more credit card debt than they did a decade ago. And ultimately, that's the fuel, right? That's the fuel that goes into this retail economy. It doesn't go on forever. At some point, you run out of fuel. And you need to either fill that tank up with Higher wages, or an economy that is 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 offering um, individuals more, whether it, it it's in in better jobs or more investment returns, however that may be, wealth creation needs to come around. And if you run out of fuel, uh, that retail economy starts to to come to a halt. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a bit more of a conservative consumer this holiday season, um, particularly based on where we stand today on credit card debt. And one more reason we say that retail is hard is part of retail is managing your inventory. Oh yeah. And as these retailers look to see to what extent they can pull levers on pricing, they also have to factor in their level of inventory. And let's face it, some of them are better than others when it comes to managing their inventory. Yeah, there's no question. And I mean, the the, the younger companies that were built on technology that are better at using data, better at collecting data and using that data for decisions, they're going to have an easier time of it. But it's still not going to be easy. I mean, I think any way, any which way you cut it, if you're if you're an executive or some higher up at one of the, at any sort of retail operation, I mean, that has got to be a real challenge right now trying to predict. What you think are going to be appropriate retail inventory levels here for the coming months? Because you're right. I mean, depending on the nature of your business, after that holiday season is over, some of that some of that inventory becomes almost just worthless. In in of course that ends up crunching margins in a big way, and you see that play out in the following year. The market's not stupid; they start seeing that stuff well in advance, and so this is going to be a really telling holiday season, I think, from a number of angles. Jason Moser, thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about on The Motley Fool, may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. show is mixed by Nationals fan extraordinaire Austin Morgan. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.